the thing that we spoke about the most is creating that culture, the culture for coaching, the culture for learning. And when that is established, it doesn't matter if it's September or if it's May, learning is what's going to take place. And that's what people come to do. Hi, I'm Diane Sweeney, and I'm the author of The Essential Guide for Student-Centered Coaching and our newest book, Moves for Launching a New Year of Student-Centered Coaching. And I'm Brandon Lewis, an innovation and learning coach in Liberty, Missouri. And this is Student-Centered Coaching, the podcast, where we sit down with coaches and teachers to explore how they are supporting student learning. Our hope is that through sharing these stories, we can all grow together. For today's teacher interview, I am so honored to sit down not only with um, a phenomenal teacher, uh, but a good friend as well. Um, Natalie Potier, while this is her 11th year in the classroom, she has spent time in kindergarten, second grade, and now this is her first year in fourth grade. Um, she is nationally board certified, but above all of that, she is unbelievable with her students and the way she's able to get to know them on such a personal level as a learner and as a student and um, the growth that she's able to see in them. So Natalie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. We received a question. Um, we've actually received this question a few times from teachers, which I think is really cool. So I wanted to give you the opportunity to respond to people who have asked this question. And the question was, why should I as a teacher work with a coach? So it's kind of been phrased in some different ways. Like I'm kind of on the fence. Not really sure. Um, there's teammates of mine that have worked with a coach, but um, basically, how would you talk to someone or another teacher who is kind of on the fence and persuade them to work with a coach? What would you say to them? Um, I think that I've been lucky enough to work with multiple coaches, multiple buildings, um, and even within districts. And the first thing I would say is, well, I've never approached a coach um, and been told that they can't help me with something. So the different experiences that you can get from working with a coach are really within the realm of whatever you need help with. So for me, when I started teaching kindergarten, I actually wasn't certified for kindergarten my first year. The district had to help me get certification, but it was one of those years where they couldn't get teachers and I was fresh out of school. And so I had needed a lot of support with um, most of my experience had been upper elementary. So I needed a lot of support with behavior management and how to teach reading to younger kids because I'd really been working with fourth and fifth grade. Um, and then moving on to second grade, I started getting into teaching to comprehend. And then when I kind of found my groove and my, um, comfort level as an individual, as a teacher, I started working on personalizing learning for students. And so I worked with a coach on that. Um, and then now I feel like most of my work has been how to integrate, um, new resources, which is always happening and how to provide a variety of ways for your kids to learn when your research, when your resource is only within, um, your grade level. And then also embedding content areas to help save time. I feel like that's my, that's been my, um, big work this year in fourth grade is trying, you know, how can I pull in science and social studies during my ELA block so that I'm really saving myself time and kind of doing two birds with one stone. Um, so, I mean, I really think it boils down to the two heads are better than one mentality. Like a coach is just someone who 
you really get to partner with. And I think that's the key word is it's, it's someone that you can partner with, you can bounce ideas off of. And then I've also had plenty of experiences where a coach has connected me with another expert within our district or within my building who maybe I didn't know they were working on the same thing as me. So then even making those connections and then having more people to collaborate with, um, for the benefit of your students is really the best bonus. Another thing I would say is that teaching is always changing. Um, you know, in my 11 years, I've used so many different resources in all different subject areas. And we all know you never get the same group of kids twice. So even where you may have felt comfortable um, in a previous year in a current grade level, you might just get that one batch of kids that maybe there's a huge spread in their ability levels and you just need to figure out how to teach them all where they are, as well as teaching them your content areas and working with a coach can really um, help you figure out how to do that. Um, so that all of your kids are successful every year. I feel like a lot of teachers who maybe um, aren't familiar with coaching or have never worked with a coach almost have that fear of like, if I do, maybe I'm doing something wrong um, or they they kind of look at coaches as like, there's someone who is a teacher fixer. And you, you said the word partner, like, I mean, you hit that nail on the head already yourself. So like, I think it's... Um, it's good to see teachers like you who, uh, I'm not trying, to, this is going to come across as a validative, but it's a compliment. Like you're a phenomenal teacher. And so to see a teacher like you always um, being willing and not just willing, but like desiring to partner with coaches is just really refreshing. And I think it's a testament to new teachers or other teachers who haven't maybe worked with a coach before when they see you working with a coach, like that makes a statement to them. And I just think that's really cool. I remember, uh, so seven years ago, I sent the email to Kellerbrook Elementary, which is where you worked at the time, introducing myself as a new coach. And I quickly got a reply from you. And it was a very long, detailed email about all the things you wanted to partner with me on. And I remember thinking, well, coaching is going to be so easy. Like, look at all these people are just going to want to work with me. This is going to be great. Um, and I seriously, I feel like anytime I see you or talk to you, I always think about that. And I just feel like you made my initial experience with coaching um, fun and you made it easier than what it probably should have been. Um, and I just want to say thank you to you, to you oh, for that too. That's so nice. Thank yeah. you. Well, I think a lot of teachers are always seeking to improve just like anybody, you know, in especially in teaching because of all the things that are always changing. So that's kind of me, lifelong learner here, always wanting to make sure that I'm that I'm hitting what the kids need and doing it the best way possible. So, and it's boring if you just keep doing the same thing. So, you know. I agree. Have, have the coaches help me out. <laughs> what can I, I do that I haven't tried yet? Lay it on me. <laughs> well, Natalie, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Thanks I, for having me. I have really honestly, selfishly been wanting to have a reason to have you on here. So like when we <laughs> talked about this question that we saw from teachers, I was like, I, I got someone for this. Um, so thank you for sharing uh, your insights, um, the reasons you desire to work with a coach. And I hope that other teachers hear this and realize um, the great things that can happen, uh, not just for them, but for their, especially for their students. So thank you so much. Yes, thank you so much. For this episode, we thought it would be fun to interact with our listeners. 
We've been gathering questions throughout this month on social media, and we thought we'd answer them today. Thanks to all of you who sent in your questions. Brandon, I'm really looking forward to this conversation because it's really going to take us right to what people are wondering about student-centered coaching. Yeah, we received a lot, which we appreciate. And it was fun for um, Diane and I to be able to reflect on some of these as we kind of prepared for how we wanted to address some of these. So it was really cool for us just to to dig into that and to get nerdy and talk about coaching, which we love to do. So thank you guys so much for that. Our first one comes from Michelle and she asks, in the districts where you find student-centered coaching to be most impactful, is there an expectation that teachers engage in coaching in some capacity or is it more effective to have an opt-in model where teachers only work with coaches if they want to? It's funny because we addressed this in one of our chapters in um, leading student-centered coaching. We hear this question often because it's such a, um, I think a, a, it's all about teacher engagement, really, when you think about it. And I love that Michelle used the language most impactful. Um, and so what I think, and Brandon, I'm super interested to hear what you think. My thinking is that it doesn't have to be one or the other, and that there's something in between this idea of kind of making teachers do it and having this whole idea that like you have to do it or it's just full-blown invitational and opt-in. So those are the two extremes, right? And so I think the way we like to approach it is to think about it's most impactful, I think, when teachers get to engage in coaching in the ways that make sense to them. So having a variety of entry points, having different opportunities at different times to engage deeply with a coach, having a variety of ways to engage with a coach. And then there's this role of the principal in kind of creating a culture where engaging with a coach is advocated for and principals are able to build a culture where coaching is valued and we don't want a coach to feel like they have to kind of hustle for business and hustle for teachers. It's much more um, impactful when teachers are um, just see the value of the coaching work, see the impact of the coaching work, and have a lot of entry points into the coaching work. So I wouldn't say that's opt-in. I mean, in some ways, I suppose it is, but there's also a little pressure coming from the principal to with expectation around opting in. So maybe it's opt-in with pressure. Maybe that's what I'm thinking. I don't know. What do you think, Brandon? I do like that you talked about the middle ground because where I am a coach, we consider it an opt-in model. But I think like you hit you hit it on the head when you said there's a culture for coaching. And I think the, what we have created here is that there is a culture for coach, coaching to where, yes, it's an opt-in, but it's it's something that teachers are wanting to do, if that makes sense. So where you said having to hustle and um, feel like you are really like, you know, part-time coach, part-time advertising to try to get yourself out there, like there are maybe some times when it feels like that, but once you get in the flow of things um, and you are working with teachers, I think it really comes down to the fact that it creates that culture to where they are wanting to do it. And that, to me, that's what's the most effective. I would agree. On the flip side of an opt-in model, <laughs> although we are an opt-in, there have been times, especially early on in my coaching, where um, I have been in conversations with um, the principal and it has kind of, it went to that that um, that place where no coach wants it to go 
where the admin is saying, I really want you to work with this teacher, but not in the sense of like, I think it'd be a valuable partnership, but more like, I need you to fix this teacher, which is such a dangerous spot to be and not a place I ever want to be as a coach. Early in my career, thankfully, I quickly learned that those do not go well. Like, you know, I tried to engage in a cycle that was like that. And when the um, partnership is not reciprocated, it it's, I mean, it's kind of a waste of time, you know, for everybody involved. And wouldn't you say, Brandon, that there's like an opportunity when a teacher is struggling for a principal to put coaching on the on the pathway of support, right? There's a certainly a variety of ways a, a teacher can be supported, but a lot of it is about the teacher having autonomy and how they engage with the coach so that it doesn't feel like that language fixing them. It doesn't feel like they're being sent down the hallway or the teacher, the coach has been sent into their room, but rather it's, this is a, coming from the principal, this is, um this is a need I'm seeing and we have this support and it's kind of up to you how you tap into that support. Would you would you think that would be okay in terms of an opt-in model with a little bit of pressure and expectation? I think as long as, and this goes back to what we were saying before, as long as there is that um, really good, deep um, foundation of a culture for coaching, then yes, that can be successful. Our next question comes from Kimberly and she's wondering, what are some ways outside of coaching cycles that coaches can engage with teachers? In other words, if 60% of a coach's time is spent in cycles, what sorts of things do you find a coach doing during the additional 40%? I love that she used the 60-40 language. That was exciting to see that on here. Um, while yeah. we... and a little, just a little background on that. Let me yeah. just throw a little background is that's kind of a um, something we recommend when we work with districts is and it, does, it doesn't mean that you're always at that 60% threshold of being in cycles, but it's just a goal we advocate for coaches to think about. So most of your time is in coaching cycles, and then there's this other 40% that's doing other work that's equally important, just to kind of catch people up on how that 60-40 came into the conversation. Yeah, and I'm glad you just said equally important, because I feel like earlier in my career, when I was on the 40%, which sometimes was a little higher than 40%. I kept beating myself up and feeling like I'm not doing the right work, but it is equally important because if you look at those percentages and you even think like, no, I'm going to be in 100% coaching cycles. One, you have no time to do the other stuff that's going to make your coaching sustainable over time. So it really is um, a, a good healthy balance to have somewhere around those numbers, in my opinion. Yeah, and I agree. I think the... The other 40% work may support all kinds of things that can lead to deeper coaching work. And right. so examples would be co-planning lessons with teachers or unpacking a unit with a team. Um, in your district, Brandon, you guys attend professional learning sessions with teachers. So that's an amazing opportunity that yeah. wouldn't fit into a coaching cycle, supporting classroom management. I just had a teacher a few weeks ago just say, you guys keep talking about learning targets and I just want help with classroom management, you know? And so that there's real needs that present themselves. And if we're going to be responsive, we can't just all think that a coaching cycle is going to be the only thing people need to serve all needs. That would be kind of silly to think 
I mean, they're great. We highly value coaching cycles, clearly, but there are these other things that sit outside of coaching cycles. And something you said that, that I think is interesting as we were kind of discussing these questions is you were bringing up the importance of relationships. Do you want to speak to that? Yeah, we, I mean, if you think about 60% of your time and how many teachers there are in the building or buildings that you get, you know, the benefit to get to work with the teachers, there's a lot of teachers that you're not currently engaged with or that you might not have a relationship with at all. So I think some of that 40% time is is taking strides to build those relationships with some of those teachers, which goes back to what I was saying about you need some of that time to make your coaching sustainable over time because a lot of that is thinking about potential cycles that could be coming up in the future. Um, and those don't happen if you don't have relationships with teachers. So like you said, like in our district, one of my favorite things, and I'm in a week where I'm doing this a lot right now, um, we we have the the luxury of um, our budget, a big percentage of it is on bringing in different consultants and having a lot of PD opportunities in our district. So getting to sit side by side with teachers that I'm partnering with or just happen to be in the same building with could ultimately lead to deeper and future coaching work. Well, and that's the, that's kind of how I look at it too. I look at it like a garden where you're trying to put healthy soil in a garden and you're doing all of these things that support the flowers to bloom. And so we do want to think about all of these things, hopefully leading to some coaching cycles. Um, it's That is a important, important part of our work. Um, but sometimes it takes, if we're going to go back to the earlier question about opt-in model where teachers have some agency and autonomy, then we have to be able to create real opportunities to connect with people. And so again, if we were forcing people into coaching cycles, we may be missing all of these other opportunities. So again, you said this earlier, but it's really a healthy balance between 60 and 40. And also just to say one more time, the beginning of the year, you're not going to be anywhere near that. And maybe even at the end of the year, it's, it's the, the school year has kind of a rhythm. So there are points when it's easier to reach that threshold than other times in the year. Yeah. Um, I know this kind of goes along with this. So I, I think I'll just throw this in. We also receive questions about um, leading PD and thoughts on that. And I do feel like where even leading some PD sessions does fall into that 40% time. I think the fear is that I don't want to be deemed as an expert if I'm leading on a certain topic. So I don't know if I've talked about this on here or not, but one of the rules that our boss kind of has for our team is we only lead PD if we're co-leading with a teacher and it's on something that we had worked on together. So I, at first I, I, to be honest, I was kind of annoyed by that because there's some great opportunities that I would like to share some learning on. But then I realized over time, like that's been so powerful for other teachers to see that partnership and what um, the value that they could have in a partnership with me. So it has actually led to a lot of future coaching work um, by protecting it that way and showing it as a partnership and not as an expert. That is so cool. I love that example. That is really such a smart way to get teacher's voice into the conversation. Make sure you're not the sage on the stage, creating relationships. I'm sure it took longer to get some of it done because you're co-planning, but that's fantastic. That's yeah. so smart. It is It is one of the many things I do appreciate um, about my boss and the way that she views coaching and the way that it should be done um, in our schools here. Yeah. 
Our next question comes from Pamela and she is a pre-K coach and she asked, what does pre-K coaching look like in a student-centered model? Well, it's funny because when learning is happening, it doesn't really change a lot and learning happens in a pre-K setting. So our coaching framework doesn't change a lot. I guess probably the biggest difference would be the types of goals and learning targets that a coach and teacher are constructing. Um, an example might be that um, a coaching cycle in pre-K might focus a lot more on something like independence or moving through um, uh, stations in a classroom or um, managing you know, yourself um, as a learner. Um, it could, there's so many different, there could be SEL goals. Um, so I guess when I'm thinking about pre-K coaching, it, it wouldn't necessarily feel really different. You just want the goals and the learning targets to represent whatever learning you're hoping to see from the students, which in other words would be those pre-K standards. And so the thing that probably is the biggest difference in my opinion would be the observational data collection we would do in a pre-K setting, which by the way, I find pre-K teachers are pretty used to doing. Uh, they know no, no pre-K students are gonna be writing their thoughts in a you know exit slip or something like that, that you'd see at the secondary level or the elementary level. But you can gather, you can gather so much insight from knowing what you hope the students will do and working together to design learning where they'll get that opportunity and watching what they do and then coming back together and deciding what to do next. So in a lot of cases, it's just, it, it's not really different. It's just the apps, the, the focus of the learning might be different. I don't know. What do you think, Brandon, as, as I kind of try to picture this in my mind? I like to relate it to the, the opposite end of the spectrum with like um, a really high level secondary course. Like think about like a, you know, like a AP chemistry class or something like that just because a high school coach wasn't a chemistry teacher before doesn't mean they can't coach and enter a partnership with that teacher. I know we talked about that just in our last episode with Brett being a high school coach. You don't have to be an expert in all content areas to still be able to be beneficial as a coach in that. So I almost kind of think of that in the same way as pre-K where I don't think the actual partnership would look different. It is focused on the specific learning that's taking place um, within that classroom. Yeah. And when, I mean, I think all of the co-planning, co, you know, coaching in the classroom, all of those core practices still apply here, right? We're yeah. still in, in the room with teachers. We're still planning lessons that will meet the needs of the students. We're still trying to differentiate and coming up with, you know, that lesson that meets needs in a lot of different ways. Um, and all of that is from collecting evidence in the classroom and being in there yes. to be able to use yes. that to co-plan and differentiate for students. And that, doesn't yeah. really change where you are. Yeah. So it, some of it reminds me too of special education coaching. Is this, you know, we we work with some special education um, nonprofits and such, and they'll they'll uh, oftentimes need to think, what is what learning do we want in our setting? Even if it's a sort of a, you know, a more um, supported special education environment, what do we want our students doing here? How are we going to make that happen? What's our partnership going to look like? 
Yeah. And then how are we going to collect evidence along the way? Yeah. I, I have had multiple, um, cycles in the sped setting and I, I thoroughly enjoy it. Like, and again, it just shows it's another example of like, it's not, it's not different. It's, it's still coaching. Another question we, we got was about measuring impact and student growth. And this one is interesting. The question is, what tools do coaches use to measure student growth in areas such as engagement, asking thoughtful questions, self-confidence, those kinds of things? Um, I like this question because I think uh, when you kind of look at like at the surface level and you just think of evidence or you even think of, you know, the word the word data, like you think of pre post okay, here's our scores. Let's look at growth. Let's go. But in the midst of a, of a cycle and a, and a true like partnership, there's so much evidence that you're collecting along the way, um, regardless of what the goal is kind of piggybacking on what you said with that last answer. It's really about what the learning is, is taking place, um, within that classroom. So whether in the question, it specifically mentioned engagement or asking different types of questions, self-confidence, I think that that, that real-time collection of evidence, whether it's, you know, noticing and naming of you have that chart in front of you of all the students and you're writing all that anecdotal evidence that you see in real time. That's so powerful when you have those conversations after the fact with a teacher to move forward and to come up with plans on what needs to happen next. That doesn't just need to be on how they're doing when, you know, multi-digit uh, multiplication. It could also be on, self-efficacy or you know anything like that yeah and that brings up an interesting thought as you're sharing those ideas that are great ideas is the idea that when we're in the classroom watching learning happen and collecting evidence we want to be really careful to be looking at the learning versus time on task or those sorts of things because let me tell you kids sure can look like they're learning. Um, they sure can look busy in a classroom, but it's our job to really be watching them with that learning target in mind, thinking and working with that teacher to say, what depth is the learning? How is the learning showing up? To what depth? And so I think that piece is important. And also what came to mind is as you were sharing all of these ideas is looking at engagement or questions that are being asked or the self-confidence of students, those things can be collect that, that anecdotal evidence can be collected inside of a coaching cycle and outside of a coaching cycle. So what I mean by that is a teacher might just say, Hey, can you just come in and notice a name my, um, in my classroom one period, you know, or during math and a coach can do that outside of a coaching cycle. So while it's very much embedded in coaching cycles, using um, measuring student growth with with student evidence can be used in all different ways and at all different times. I had actually given that example of self-efficacy before, and it, it kind of leads to a cycle that I was in in the fall with some fifth grade students where it was still, um, the goal was focused around a math standard, but we kind of had a parallel um, student goal to help elevate their self-efficacy. That was actually the main, the main, um, I guess, area of concern that the teacher approached me about was they just don't believe in themselves. So, you know, like 
we we switched resources to a much more rigorous math resource this year and they just have told themselves that they cannot do this and it was really hard for her to to be okay with that which is awesome so we kind of had two goals that kind of ran parallel and one of them was on self-efficacy and to collect um some of that pre-data to see what we were i don't want to say to see how bad it really was but I, I was really curious on when she says that, like, what, what, you know, how do they feel about themselves? And I, I thought it would be wise to, I was like, I'll just interview them. I will have a one-on-one conversation with all of them. And I have these great questions and man, they, their efficacy was very high, <laughs> but it quickly made <laughs> me realize they're, they're not, they're answering what they feel like they should be saying, not how they truly feel. So we had to pivot and we put it on to, um, a Google form and it made it way easier for them to be able to type how they really felt. And I think we got a much more authentic response. So we were able to use that as some pre um, data. But so the really cool thing is um, at the end, because I think I had developed better relationships with them as well, we were able to go back and collect the data at the end by just having a conversation and me taking just that anecdotal notes and collecting the evidence that way. Um, and the growth was amazing um, at the end. So again, it doesn't have to just be on a reading standard or something like that. Like there are so many other areas that help improve student learning. And it's crucial for us as coaches to be partnering with teachers in these capacities. I love that example. That's such a great example. Another question we received was, what are some ways coaches celebrate the completion of a coaching cycle and the student and teacher growth that occurred as a result of the partnership. It's kind of funny because I posted this question on social media this week and saw some awesome, awesome ideas. I struggle a little bit with this. I always want to be more fun, <laughs> but it really does come down to identifying the growth, the growth uh, for the student as the question referred to and the teacher. So I think just sitting down and having a conversation at the end of a coaching cycle and just identifying the growth is enough. First of all, that's always enough because that is about building efficacy. That's a mastery experience. That's um, a data. That's a quantitative conversation. Oftentimes, what was the actual growth, per, you know, proficiency level growth. It's a qualitative conversation because it's what's the growth in terms of my instruction and the student learning in general. So that alone is enough. I just want to say that. We have some videos in the moves book of a couple of these conversations where this is that's happening, but there's also some other really fun examples. I saw an example where um, could teachers wear crowns at the end of their coaching cycle and where poppers are popped and celebrations are, you know, created. I've seen examples where the um, the principal posts about the growth that happened in a newsletter. There's just a lot of ways to celebrate. The key is that we are celebrating, that we're identifying the growth. We have to, it depends on our personality. It depends on the personality of the teachers. It could be a team we're working with. It could be an individual. But again, that I would always go back to the quantitative and qualitative um, conversation. We do have um, questions to guide this on the results-based coaching tool. On the back back of that, on page two, there's, there's definitely questions to guide this conversation, but... I'm curious, how do you celebrate, Brandon, at the end of your coaching cycles? 
I think for me now, some of the examples you said, I am not the type that's going to, you know, pass out crowns and use poppers, but that's not, that's not my way of saying that we shouldn't do that. That's maybe just not my personality to do that. Um, I also think though, sometimes it needs to not be about us. It needs to be about the teachers and what their personalities are and how they feel about it. So whether, when that's not my way of maybe celebrating, if I had been working with a teacher who they are about those things, then I need to, I need to maybe be better about doing some of those things to really celebrate them and, and show them how amazing that their work was that they did with their students during um, this cycle. So that's probably something that I could do a better job of. Um, mine typically consists of um, just that conversation and looking at uh, all of the successes and just sharing those and making sure that those are being named. And I will say this too, um, and you had said it with qualitative and quantitative. I like to call out kids by name and talk about them and their successes. There's so much more power when you put um, a face and a name to what you see on paper. And that's so much of why we as educators do what we do is because we love kids so much. So to, to think about an individual child and share their specific growth over time is, is really exciting to me. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And I do want to name in a, in a secondary context, it may just be one block that the teacher teaches or one prep, you know, and it may be, you can still approach that identifying students by name in a secondary context, which is in some ways even more powerful because of the fact that they can be lost in the, you know, in the shuffle sometimes yeah. as individual learners. That's yeah. cool. Well, our last question really is timely and it's from Katie. And Katie asks, how do we keep the momentum going even in the midst of testing stress? How do we get all to trust the process of student-centered coaching? Brandon, what do you think? First of all, I love that she asked this question. I do find that this is one of the hardest times of the year to start um, entering uh, partnerships as, you know, post spring break. But on the flip side, to me, this is when it's the most exciting. My, I had a, when I was in the fifth grade classroom, my former principal used to say, this is a time of the year when you can throw stuff on the wall and see what sticks. I you was know, just going to, yeah, it's the time to be creative and yeah, do something fun. Where it kind of can be low stakes. And mm -hmm. for me, like, where I'm super passionate about trying things differently and really trying to approach things in, through a different lens. Like, I feel like this is my time when I like to thrive and shine. And so in that sense, like it's an exciting time for coaches. Um, <laughs> but I do know that on the flip side, you are maybe combating other mindsets of, no, I don't have time. I have to I hate that these, this even comes out of my mouth, but there are a lot of teachers that feel like, no, I've got to, you know, take every minute I have to make sure every piece of information that might be on one test that these mm -hmm. kids, you know, it's, it's in front of them so they can hear it and they can, you know, learn it so they can show people that they know it. So that is, that is, our, that's the reality. So what are your thoughts on that? And, um, well, again, I think it's very different elementary to secondary. 
because let's just talk about high schools for a sec to honor our high school listeners. You know, once AP tests are taken and IB tests are taken, uh, kids are barely even coming to class anymore, if even required to come at all. So the, 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 it is kind of an endpoint in some ways in, in a high school context where we don't have that in elementary. In that in, um, situation, a great opportunity would be to just co-plan with some teachers or take stock in the year, or maybe it's less of a coaching cycle and more um, there's coaching support. Some of that other 40% stuff we identified. Right. Um, in elementary, I think it's a great opportunity to look at, did a year's worth of growth and a year's worth of time happen? Is there any like are there any things that we really think are important for our grade level to, you know, to have secure for our students so that they go into the next grade ready? And so if, for example, students still aren't, you know, understanding, I'm just going to give a dumb idea of the main idea of a text. And you're like, oh my gosh, we still have room to do this. And there's evidence even after, you know, spring break, I think there might be some, some things we can find that really matter to teachers to partner with them on. So I think what I would recommend is after spring break, our, our entry points into coaching might need to be tweaked a little bit. And they may be think kind of like, what's that passion project you've been wanting to try? Right. Or what are what's some student data that has you a little nervous and that you really want to double down on with your class this this next few months, weeks, or what um what's some co-planning you want to do to prepare for next year or get on the same page with your team or so yeah i think we just have to have different entry points after spring break is real i mean we all know how many fridays we have until summer right so that is a real thing we're dealing with i don't know for the record how many fridays we have <laughs> that's cuz you're such a passionate educator <laughs> <laughs> But I think that just to go on to Katie's question, back to Katie's question, how do we get all to trust the process of student-centered coaching? Um, that one to me is such an uphill battle because coaching historically has been so evaluative and teachers just expect it to be evaluative. If you were to survey a thousand teachers in the United States and ask them, what is instructional coaching? So many of them would say it's an it's a quasi administrator. It's somebody coming in and observing me and telling me how good of a job I'm doing and evaluating me. Yeah. And evaluating me. And so the way we build trust in the process is we just consistently loop back to student learning constantly. We always look at what do you want your kids to learn and do? Let's make it happen. Student learning, student learning, student learning. And when we do that, the trust builds gradually and teachers start saying, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. This really helped. This is really meaningful work. And then they start advocating for coaching. That really comes full circle back to the very first question we had, where the, the thing that we spoke about the most is creating that culture. In yes. The, building. the culture for coaching, the culture for learning. And when that is established, it doesn't matter if it's September or if it's May learning is what's going to take place. And that's what people come to do um, inside the walls. So. Yeah. So true. That's why I always, I always avoid calling schools buildings because it's a, yeah. it's not a building. It's a school. We're here to learn. Let's always anchor our work in that the trust will be built. Yeah. Well, one, Diane, 
thank you for uh, answering these questions that were sent in. It was fun to, for us just to be able to talk about these together. Um, and also just a, another thank you to those that did contribute the questions. Brandon, do you think we should do this again sometime? Oh, 100%. We almost could make this every episode, to be honest. Um, I, selfishly, it was kind of fun to have you to myself and to just be the two of us on here. But I am looking yeah. forward to having uh, another coach to talk to you next time. Yeah. So we'll keep we'll keep interviewing coaches and um, learning from teachers who are experiencing coaching. But thanks again. Also, I just want to say thanks again to those of you who sent in questions and We'll um, we'll look forward to continuing our conversation in the future. Yeah. To all those that have continued to listen from the beginning, we're so grateful for you. Um, and to all the new listeners, thanks for checking us out. And uh, we look forward to bringing you more content in the near future. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Student-Centered Coaching, the podcast, is brought to you by Diane Sweeney Consulting. For more information, visit dianesweeney.com. Music is brought to you by Clemency. You can check them out at clemencyonline.com. There you can find more information on how to download their music. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast where podcasts are found and follow us on Twitter at SC Coaching Pod.